Hi, my name is Steve Williams. And I'm Clara Williams. We would like to welcome you to our new podcast, Voices from the Choir, Oh Happy Day Reflections. This podcast is about my journey growing up in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay area, along with my cousin Diane, my childhood friends Kathy, Donald, Arva, Gwen, and Arva and Gwen's cousin Ron, and our time as members of the Edwin Hawkins Singers. We'll each share stories which began with singing in the Northern California State Youth Choir of the Church of God in Christ. Our incredible journey starts when we recorded an album that included the song, Oh Happy Day, which changed our lives. We've never shared these stories until now. Over the years of our marriage, Claire has always wanted to tell the story of this life-changing event. I'll be your host through these nine episodes as we hear from these voices from the choir. Today, our special guest is Arvandalyn Campbell, Arva, as she is called by her friend. Arva is a lifelong friend from our early childhood. Arva was a member of the Northern California State Youth Choir of the Church of God in Christ and an original member of the Edwin Hawkins Singers. After our time in the Edwin Hawkins Singers, Arva and I were roommates at San Jose State University, along with former Hawkins Singers alumni, Kathy Gaines and Mary Branch. Arva is a passionate educator, having received her MS degree in educational leadership. She is semi-retired and currently teaches an African-American literature class to seventh and eighth graders. Over the years, Arva has shared her love for learning, empowering youth, and traveling the world. Let's hear Steve's conversation with Arva. Hello, Arva. How you doing? I'm great. <laughs> Glad to be here. <laughs> We've talked about it for a long time, and we're finally getting around to it, which is talking to the people that were in the choir and what it meant to them. Really looking forward to this conversation. Let's start this off. Uh, just give me a little bit of, of history uh, for you, Arva, where you grew up, um, your experience in the church, where you went to church, and how that really led to you getting into the, the original choir, which was the Northern California Youth Choir. You know, this has really taken me back. <laughs> but I know as a youngster growing up uh, here in the Bay Area, uh, my family, we were reared in Berkeley. Berkeley always had a really good music program from elementary to junior high at that time to high school. So I always found myself involved in choral groups in Berkeley and under the leadership of my dad, who was the pastor of our church. We always had a network of friends who did the same thing that loved to sing. And we uh, found ourselves uh, all auditioning for the Northern California State Youth Choir in Berkeley. We all got in. <laughs> that was the beginning of our, you know, really formal training of gospel music under the direction of um, Edwin Hawkins. I was 16 when I auditioned, almost 17. 1966 is when I auditioned. And the rest is history. <laughs> you grew up in Berkeley? Yes. I was uh, born in Oakland, but in the late 
1950s, actually 1959, third grade, my mom and dad and my sister and brother and I, we moved to Berkeley. So I went from third grade to high school in Berkeley. And your father was a pastor. You know, I have to, I think I got to retract that because I'm having a little bit of a memory lapse. (laughs) We grew up under actually my uncle, who was our pastor, but my dad could have very well been our pastor because in 1968, he accepted his calling to become a pastor. So I guess that does make sense. From this point on, once we got active in the choir, dad was our pastor. Our affiliation was with the Church of God in Christ here in the Bay Area. And he was one of our biggest cheerleaders. He and my mom both, uh, they know they knew we had uh, a love for singing and in songs unto the Lord, the creativity side of it. So they they were always giving us the go ahead and you can do this and enjoy. So I appreciate that. Yes, that's really fortunate to have. Now, the Church of God in Christ was made up of district churches, right? Or, or district Correct. Yes, uh, the um, the organizational chart of the Church of Garden Christ at that time, and probably still is now, is that in each state there were designated bishops who presided over a number of church or a jurisdiction. At that time in California, Northern California, there was one jurisdictional bishop. Now we've got a number that you can count on two hands <laughs> because <laughs> it is what it is. But we were all one big conglomerate of young people from various churches that made up the Northern California State Youth Choir. What was the history behind that? Because the Northern California State Youth Choir did not always exist. No, it didn't always exist, but there was for each jurisdiction, each uh, bishop always had a choir. So whenever there were uh, meetings that were held annually, there was always a a convocation, a holy convocation, where all the churches would come together host a a series of services for a week, and each department within the church would have a night, or the youth night, the musical night, the evangelistic night, on and on and on, and they would come from all of the Bay Area to the headquarters for that particular meeting, and we would have those meetings, and in conjunction to that, there would be other departmental meetings, youth congresses, and evangelistic congresses, and you name it. And so typically the choir that represented the state would be asked to sing either on the musical night or another night, even for the bishop, for his special night to honor him. The choir would be there to, you know, bring in the good music and the inspiration. So the choir, the music part of the of the of the um, Church of God in Christ, the music department was very, very important in terms of, uh, you know, being present at those various meetings. Those are usually annually, sometimes twice a a year, depending on the need. The school you went to, being a part of the Kojic Church, how was that interfacing with the kids in the schools? Because from what I understand is that the life of a families in the Kojic churches were very involved Mm -hmm. in, in all of the activities. Mm-hmm. that were a part of that. Right. Well, I feel I was uh, one of many uh, members of the choir that had parents that were really, really involved as well in the church and also involved in what their kid was doing at school. So that integration and that parental 
like I'm looking at you. I, you know, what are you doing at the school? <laughs> you know, and so and I don't know if we got threats. Like if you don't do right at school, I'm pulling you out of that choir. I don't, re- I don't recall that because I, I didn't want to be pulled out of the choir. But definitely, we knew that our moms and dads and our circle of um, friends, uh, adult friends, looked out for each of us and made sure we were safe and they felt comfortable because number one. It was we were a part of the Church of God in Christ, kind of the headquarters there in Berkeley, uh, uh, under the direction of a well-known, um, you know, person, and uh, at Bishop E. E. Cleveland's church, who was a national evangelist and pastor. So the credentials were well set. And a number of the uh, members of the choir, their parents and grandparents were members of that church. So it was kind of like a, a hub. It was not, you know, I wonder where those kids are going or who are they under. under. It, it, it was never, for, for none of us, I don't think we had to have that issue addressed. It was understood. They're going to Ephesians <laughs> church. Yes. And that's where we typically mm-hmm. would have our rehearsals. Uh, we had a few other places in the Bay Area, other churches, but uh, that was the headquarters. And so everybody knew Ephesians. That was just like going to, your favorite, you know, hamburger place or whatever restaurant. Everybody felt the parents felt good about allowing their kids to participate, even if it was late hours. We we never got scolded or anything of that nature because it was a safe harbor to know you could be. Oh, they're there at the church. They're good. <laughs> so once you got into the choir, and this was really maybe a year or so before recording an album. What were the activities at that time? Then? Again, I'm, I'm going to go on my memory. We uh, would sing at the various jurisdiction events, like, for example, the convocation and some of the other departments. And then even we would go to other churches uh, if we get got invited to participate uh, on a program. And I think within the church circles, if my memory serves me right, that was the function. There was a, a sort of a, a hierarchy. What I mean by that is uh, we had a youth president and a youth chair lady. And so everything was funneled through them in terms of where we needed to be to sing for a church function. I don't recall doing much more than church functions until we began to be the Edwin Hawkins singers. I'm trying to reflect. I don't remember that. I, I think it was after the song was discovered, then it became, you know, public information. And so we began to be involved in venues and places and that we had no idea what they were like or about. <laughs> we were kind of sheltered to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, a, that's something that we'll talk about now. And, and then how did the choir fit in or how did your responsibility to the choir fit in before the record? I mean, in terms of you rehearsed how often and okay. you performed occasionally when and those kind of things. Again, remembering from a 17-year-old mind, I know we rehearsed at least once a week. I don't recall if we were rehearsed much more than that. There was discipline in our rehearsals. The members of the choir really respected Edwin Hawkins. He hardly had to raise his finger to direct us for the most part. I don't even recall him really uh, getting up from the piano to teach a part. He would just he'd play the part. I feel that everyone respected his leadership. We would crescendo, we would decrescendo, just with the elevation of his hand and bringing it down. 
So we were very disciplined, but I think for the most part, every once in a while we'd get, uh, we'd get, uh, what's that word when you, um, when the kids are acting up, like, okay, come to order, come to order. A little rowdy. <laughs> yeah, a little rowdy, you know, a little giggly or whatever. But it was the respect to me, as I'm, you know, reflecting on it, we really respected his, his authority. He wasn't harsh or brutish but he was not condescending. He was giving us what he could give us and we were open to receive it. We were like willing to learn. Uh, when we went to rehearsals, you know, we were on time and in between we would giggle and talk, but when it was time to get on task, we were on task. <laughs> See, that's an interesting thing because you mentioned 17 years old. You're a teenager coming up to maybe the last year in high school. Mm -hmm. You were so focused. That's amazing to me because those are the times that really teenagers start to get unfocused mm -hmm. and think about other things. That was really kind of interesting because, and the choir was made up of a very diverse age group. Mm -hmm. It wasn't all teenagers, right? Correct. No, we felt, at least I felt we were the hip group because, you know, <laughs> the kid, the people that were 20 and over were old to us <laughs> or 30. In fact, Edwin Hawkins was only about seven years older than me. But when, mm -hmm. when I look in retrospect, you know, he was in his 20s when uh, I got into the choir. So, but it, it was a very obvious, the old people and, and us in our mind's eye. <laughs> they weren't hardly old. But, you know, when you're young, like you said, it's like, oh, Lord, you know, they're the old people. And we did have some that were actually seniors, like probably late 50s, early 60s, maybe. We had one or two that were in that age bracket. So it, it was fairly diverse as far as age, uh, young people. I, the youngest person, I think, was about 14. So from about age 14, probably up to about 60, maybe. I don't. Mm. There's two people I don't know. I'm not trying to say they were old, but we did say they were old <laughs> as a teenager. <laughs> Who else helped out with the choir? Who were the people that were sort of shaped it and kept it, uh, you know, together and stuff? Well, mm -hmm. uh, initially when we began as a Northern California State Youth Choir, the governance of it was partnership between the deceased Betty Watson and Edwin Hawkins. And they were kind of co-directors of the choir. And then there were others in the background. You know how when you're a part of something, unless you're in the loop with who's running it, you just go and sit on your chair and sing your part. But I do recall, particularly when we began to travel some, we had some of the members of our choir, their moms or their dads uh, were our chaperones, or we would look up and we see a new face. I wonder who that is. And that would be someone brought on to either, you know, carry the equipment or there'd be a, another face that would appear that was not really a part of our group. I wonder who that is. So we just kind of went along with the, the flow of those that were running it. Hopefully that kind of addresses what no, you're No, that makes sense. And at 17, I mean, you know, that's not your concern, right? Right. I just wanted to sing and, and do well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that was really good. So one of the things that I wanted to really find out about was when it came up that this recording was going to happen, that you guys were going to do an, an album, what did you feel about that? How, what did that elicit to... Okay. Were people excited about it at all? Well, let me tell you. So here's part two to this. So in 1968, I graduated from Berkeley High School. After that, that June, I 
gotten a scholarship to study abroad. So I was gone for six weeks. And then after that, I returned home and then I went up to the state of Washington for one year of college at a little private university. So while I was at the university, that's when the news hit. So I was not at Berkeley. All of a sudden, the church I was going to in Tacoma, Washington, they had a DJ. He called me, said, I want to interview you. I said, about what? So I was getting interviewed in Washington about the Edwin Hawk singers and Oh Happy Day. They started making me feel like I was somebody. I said, uh. <laughs> and by this time, I was 18. Yeah, because it was 1968. I went away to college. And so when I came home the summer of 69, I wasn't quite sure if Edwin was going to allow me to just go back into the fold because I had been away most of the summer of 68 and then the whole nine months of my first year of college of 69. But he welcomed me back. And that was June of 69. And then Mm. we took off, I think, July, if I'm not mistaken, of 69 for our tour. But prior to that, the choir, once the fame had hit and all that, they were touring and and gigging and all that kind of good stuff in my absence. So I got a a little bit of it, but I I had it like a delayed, but I got in. So you came back to go on the tour. Exactly. And to come back to Berkeley because I said, no, I can't go to this university. It rained almost the whole nine months I was away. So I said, no, I've got to go back to the Bay Area. And I did. I feel honored to be able to get back into it because by that time, you know, fame hits and people don't know who you are anymore. (laughs) You know, it's like, who are you? But I never got that feeling. Edwin welcomed me back. I knew the songs because I recorded the album when we recorded it. So it wasn't like I didn't know, but I hadn't been to rehearsal for about eight months. And I I felt like I felt super honored to be able to get back on uh, into the group. Wow, that's a good story. That really is. I didn't realize that, too, yeah, that, that yeah. you had that gap in there. Yeah. So, Arvo, what about the recording, the, the actual preparation and doing the recording? What do you remember about that? Uh, I remember the lights. I think I remember how it was an anointed. It wasn't like we were just singing words. I mean, I feel that most of us were really had uh, the ministry of what we were singing about at heart. We were very skilled in the singing part. That's okay, but with the anointing makes it that much more impactful. I feel we were singing as if we were at church. I believe it was live, but now I don't remember (laughs) if it was a live recording or not. I think there were people there. We just sang. We gave it 150%. It was exciting. I'll never forget it. The recording gets done, right? Mm -hmm. You finish it. Mm -hmm. The task of that recording was... Really to do what? Oh, yeah. There's a reason. Right. Because, again, uh, because we were affiliated with the Church of God in Christ, every year, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the various departments would help host conventions. And so there was a youth congress, which is a youth convention, that typically is held every year. Again, I'm just singing because I love to sing. I knew that we needed to raise money. And so the album was going to be a source of income to help uh, offset the cost for the trip, which never happened. The effort was put in there. I don't know if we didn't raise enough. I don't remember the, the details, but that was the purpose. Was to It was a fundraiser. Yes. <laughs> you look yes. at it like that. It, it was a fundraiser that went wild. <laughs> it was a vinyl chicken dinner is what it was. Yeah, right. it's a vinyl chicken. It's like, what? 
<laughs> we couldn't believe it. Oh, Lord. It was just. Because in, be, in between that time, once you recorded the album, you guys were still performing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and yeah. things, right? And you would sell the albums during the, right, those events? You know, yeah. It was done like, we, like you do when you're, you know, promoting yourself. Um, but we were under the banner of the Church of God in Christ. And we were doing our thing. We were doing it. It was like the network, you know, because it was about 50 of us. And so we, we all did our part to advance the sale of the albums. When it comes time to your back, there's going to be a tour. Mm-hmm. How did you prepare yourself? You for know, that? because I, me personally, I have been on the go ever since I graduated from high school. I was always in a suitcase. So that felt normal to me. I was kind of a wanderlust. I like, you know, that was kind of like right on my, right up my alley. You know, I had already done what I was going to do. And so I didn't have any problem packing a suitcase. I didn't have to convince mom and dad. We knew that we had really good chaperones to watch over. Well, we we said they were watching over us, but we, we <laughs> you know how we teenagers do. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, 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 and let me stop you because explain the we of that. It wasn't just you, it was you your mean, sister too. Right? Yeah, my sister and I, and we had we had our little girls group within the choir and guys group. Like I said, we the 15 through about the 18-year-olds, we kind of hung together. And the majority of us um, went to Berkeley High as well. And then there were cousins in the group and some members actually of Ephesians Church. And we just began to bond. My sister and I, she was one of the younger, youngest members of the group. I think there were three that were younger than myself. Yeah, and the rest of them were 18 and up. That's how I got back into it. And when I came back, it was just a matter of a few weeks and we were on our way flying to New York. It's like, wow. We were in awe a lot. It was, it was just being in awe, you know, because we obviously could see that there had been a, a shift in everything. You know how you go from making your own at home to going out to buy what you want to buy? Your own, your homemade is good, but when other folks are taking care of it, it's better. <laughs> so, yes, you know, it's you like, know oh, wow, we're meeting these yes. people and, oh, my goodness, they're looking at us as if we're really, and, you know, we're just being ourselves. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that, that whole experience of once you, you, and you probably were up north at that time to the college, and you're hearing the, the music mm-hmm. on the radio. Yeah. Right. Or people are hearing it and mm-hmm. then coming to you, right? Exactly. Coming to me like I was somebody. I said, oh, yes. You know, because I, you know, I, I mean, I appreciate it and I felt like I felt special, but I, it was like something beyond what I had experienced. You know, when you participate in a choral group and after the program or the show is over, you get your accolades and your claps. Good show, yes. good show, and you move on. Mm-hmm. But this never, this didn't stop. Even on my college campus, my college buddies, oh, Lord, they got their albums out. They wanted me to sign them and all kind of stuff. <laughs> I felt, I don't know how, I don't know how I felt. It felt good. And you obliged them, of course, right? Yeah, I, I did. But I just, in uh, it's just so funny. I taught some of the kids how to sing uh, the songs and all oh, they, you know, they were rocking to left and right and off beat, but that's Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I said, That's "Oh funny. my goodness, this is a, this is hilarious." Once you're on tour and you're on the East Coast, had you ever been and traveled on the East Coast before? Never. That was my first trip, summer of '69. Went back that fall with a, uh, someone you know. 
<laughs> I just couldn't get the travel out of my, you know, it was there, man. I was ready to go back again. And it was so silly. I didn't realize the weather. I think I had a coat that was probably like a trench coat in New York in December. That makes zero sense. But when you're a teenager and you you silly and you don't know that you don't know, oh my God, we like to froze to death. Oh my goodness. You know, and it, 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 but that was our, my first trip to uh, on the East Coast was 69. Yes. All of a sudden, well, no, you'd went to college. I understand that. That's, mm-hmm. and you had a, maybe a little bit more of experience because the issue of managing yourself mm-hmm. and your finances and mm-hmm. those sort of things on your own, was that a challenge at all? I don't, I, I don't think so. Uh, I don't remember if it was or not. I think we did just fine. We did get uh, stipends for the few weeks that we were uh, traveling. I was used to managing Having yes. gone abroad, having been away at college, and yes. always worked part-time jobs to help my little academic ends meet, I had a pretty good work ethic. So I didn't sp- spend all the money we got like silly like, but I took advantage of what was offered to us. If we were someplace where we were being um, taken care of, then you know I just keep my little money in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, when I wanted to splurge, I don't even recall buying any souvenirs. I can't remember if I bought souvenirs. If I did, they were probably really inexpensive. We're talking about 52 years ago. I know. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) A totally different time. Did you get much time to explore while you were out on tour? Not a lot. Uh, Mm -hmm. I know we did a little bit of, um, you know, just kind of, you know, um, seeing a little bit of New York City and Washington, D.C. We created our own entertainment. When we weren't performing somewhere, we always had an entourage of people coming to the hotel, you know, and uh, and we were we were open. Coming from Berkeley in the Bay Area, you just kind of like free spirit. And so we embraced the attention. And sometimes they would throw little parties or little gatherings, and here we go. You know, where are you going? Oh, I'm going with him. You don't know who that is. That's okay. Come on, let's go. So we would all just go together, get in, get in cars. Oh, my God. If mom and dad had known, they would not have been happy with that. But we felt like we were safe, and no, no one ever took advantage of us. But uh, they would create little uh, after-party events, or we would create them ourselves to have yes. our fun. We had a curfew. We had our chaperone told us, it's time to go to bed, but you know, you know how teenagers are. <laughs> so. so was there any one particular incident that happened while you were out there that was kind of like, whoa, we escaped that. Wow. You know, <laughs> it's nice Steve, to be back at home. Uh, Steve, if there, if there was, I have no recollection right now. It's not coming to me. There probably so was, we, I don't remember. Right. Just having fun is really what it fun. was. Just being a, like I said, coming from the Bay Area and a little bit, me personally, I'm kind of like uh, curious. And, you know, we went some places that moms and dads probably would not have been too happy with, but I felt so secure who I was. I, we're going. Let's go. <laughs> so we probably took some risks that we wouldn't have taken had we not grown up at the time we did and coming from the Bay Area. Bay Area had a put a mark on you in terms of kind of let your hair down and you're not just a little bit um, easy going. We watched the uh, Summer of Soul, the Harlem um, Cultural Music Festival. What did you think about that? You know, I felt I didn't know how to think. I'm just going to be honest with you. It was kind of like to put it in a historical context and then to fast forward 
52 years. I had no idea at that time as we were singing that we were making, we were becoming a part of history. With all the social, political environment, the Vietnam War, the uh, assassination of Dr. King the April before, uh, the uprisings, the flower children, and the, you know, the free love, everything that was going on in Berkeley. Uh, our high school is only like three or four blocks, walking blocks from UC Berkeley. So we, we were kind of like in the epicenter of a lot of the action. So I had an idea of, of what was going on. But when as we were singing, I wasn't looking at it as if we were advocating for the community of Harlem. I didn't view it as we are here to help heal Harlem. I just said, we're here to sing, if that makes sense. Looking at it this past July, it was huge. I had no idea. It's like you're making history, but you don't know until you... Yes. You don't know. And I had, you know, if you had asked me, I would... I, it never would have dawned on me, but when I looked back and watched the Summer of Soul and saw the impact in that community, and then I said, wow, we were able to be a part of that. That applied to the rest of the concerts? Because you played at some fairly large arenas, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. To me, I was just excited to, uh, like a kid at a candy store, to get all dolled up, to go perform with people that we had heard about or either bought their music or been around them. I mean, I heard about them, I brought their music or was familiar with them. And just just the whole being taken care of like a star, that was kind of cool. It's like, wow. <laughs> oh, good Lord. That that to me, that I think that was the most cool part. That must have been something to manage because you had 60 or so people I know. moving around, right? Yeah. And then that summer. We had a lot going on. We recorded another album there in New York. And I'm not sure how well it did or if it got promoted much. But all the music was just so rich and so finely done, you know. Um, that was a good experience, recording. And, you know, we met uh, different stars at that time. I remember, I think it was in Washington, D.C., at our hotel, Jose Feliciano I sat next to him on the piano and he was playing. It was just, but you know, mm. I didn't, I didn't go there. I just, it felt like, wow. So I was in awe as we were doing our part. I was in awe of those that we came in contact with, blood, sweat, and tears, and and, and you name it. And it's like, oh my god. <laughs> so we were like, ooing and awing about these people, and they were doing the same thing for us. They wanted to be it. <laughs> So they were yes. the same kind of, you know, they they didn't know that <laughs> we were just so glad to have that opportunity. And what do you think, Arva, was the, what drew them to the choir? In the I feel um, choir was so synced. When we sang, we, like I said, Edwin was an awesome director and our singers, particularly our lead singers as well, as well as the background, anointed and really gave it 150%. I don't care if they were singing in a part. For two people or a hundred people, the same energy was there. And I feel that, uh, and then the lyrics to the song, obviously contemporary gospel uh, with an upbeat, you know, a, a beat that you can kind of dance to, uh, the harmonies, I think it was catchy, like a catchy tune. And it was our time. It was, it was Edwin's time 
for his gift to go to that level. So it really was sort of uh, the forerunner of how gospel music was changing. Yeah. Anyway, it was a, tr- he and the choir sort of represented that movement into not necessarily popular culture, but definitely into a larger audience that was accepting of that. Yeah. It just crossed all kinds of, uh, you know, boundaries. Uh, I remember years later, whenever I go abroad, particularly to Paris, and if we go to a venue, uh, I would go to gospel brunches and different things. And uh, there would be people singing Oh Happy Day. And I'd look around, folks would be on the floor in a club, mm. just got their hands up. I said, and this was like in the year 2002, and they were, th- they were so into it as if it was yesterday. The impact, they just went bananas. <laughs> so it had an impact beyond us, beyond us for years. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Now, what were some of the songs on the album that spoke to you? Oh, my f- favorite one was, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. That's one of my favorite. And just the ones that had the harmonies that were just kind of different, the way we weren't accustomed to singing uh, the traditional gospel. The traditional gospel is right on. I loved it. Come and go with me to my father's house. Uh, oh, Happy Day was one of my favorite, but not really like, I heard the voice of Jesus say, and let's see, uh, some of the more mellow ones I liked, uh, the harmonies that Edwin used and how he'd have five-part harmonies and some of the jazzy uh, nuances. And, you know, we were cool, man. We would get to sing stuff that was church music, but it had a little kick to it. <laughs> yes, yes. And so, we always changed. It's stuff like I'm going through. I, yeah, I love that. Oh, yeah. I'm going through. Was, oh, my God. Yeah, with yes. Marguerite. Yeah, and... Uh, Let's see. Jesus is the lover of my soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me another one. <laughs> in my father's house. Yeah, yeah. That's that, not, that was that a, was an up. That was that was really jubilistic. Mm-hmm. Yes, very yeah, much so. That was resonated particularly with those of us who were church going. The older saints, as we say, they did get in with that. But uh, the secular world, obviously, uh, not having that cultural component, gravitated to "Oh Happy Day." "Oh Happy Day" was great. But there were some other songs in the album that were phenomenal. Uh, so yeah, um, let's see. Uh, I was glad to let us go into the house of the mm-hmm. Lord. That's a good one. Oh my that's God! A, yeah, yeah. And that was done, if I'm not mistaken. I think that was done um, a cappella. I think. Like I have to listen to my album. Seems like we did a cappella, but maybe not. Yes, that was the bass section, but it was a uh, it was the ensemble. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was. Yeah, and then uh, um, of course, Jesus is a lover of my soul. Yes, yes, and there's another one. Let's see. Uh, no, I guess that that was. I heard the voice of Jesus say. Was I heard the voice. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then uh, after that album, there were other songs we did that were my favorite too. One in particular that never got recorded until uh, Ed was teaching us um, "Footprints of Jesus," but apparently he hadn't gotten um, the okay from. Uh, it was to the song uh, wind, Windmills, Like a Circle in a Spiral, yes, Like a yes. Wheel. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I love that, but uh, we didn't record it until much, I think, the 25th anniversary album with uh, Gail Adrian Cryer leading it. And that was- Yeah, Clark said it was Autumn, autumn Leaves. Autumn Leaves, that's yeah. what it is, yes. Yes, Autumn yeah, Leaves. Yeah, and I guess he was not able to get permission or whatever. That was yes. a phenomenal song. And, and that was the one thing that 
uh, kept our, our choir unique. It's his his kind of like his uh, his style. He incorporated a number of genres in teaching, but he took the jazz aspect and he made it chorally out of this world. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that made a larger appeal as well. Being young, so young and being on that stage, literally, I mean, physically mm-hmm. on the stage in a concert. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that work in terms of your relationship to the audience? Yeah. You, you went to different places all the time. You never really knew what kind of room you were going to be in and what the kind of reception. How did you approach that? Well, let me see. Well, we... Um... We were we were coached pretty well. Sometimes where we sang was seemed like it was two little bleachers, <laughs> a little, <laughs> little just a little area, and other times it was a massive auditorium with a big stage. I think I remember that. Again, I'm going to circle back to what I said earlier. We really, as a choir, gave utmost respect to Edwin's directions, and then once we got in the groove and singing then obviously we communicated with our audience within those confines. I mean, we couldn't, we just gave 150% whether we were squeezed up together or we, if we had a full stage. So, and our, our leaders, those who led the songs, they were driving it and we were just backing them up, you know, and the audience was losing it. <laughs> and the audience was losing it. So what, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, they were just overwhelmed, you know, they, there was yes. the interaction and, uh, you know, just, you know, whether people falling out or throwing up their hats or screaming or whatever, running up and down. And depending on what we sang, uh, the audience would react differently. But in the church circles, for sure, uh, a lot of them responded favorably. We had some flack because we were going outside of the confines of the church to, quote, minister in song. But we didn't care. <laughs> Our parents let it, let us participate, and we felt good about who we were and what we were doing. So maybe the older people felt the flat more than I did about what church people were saying or not saying. But I think, like with anything new, it grabbed on. Because after that, man, we've got artists since that. They've been on every stage in the world doing everything, wearing everything, the whole nine yards, and the church, quote, is doing the same. <laughs> you know, we're keeping, yeah, the church is yeah. keeping its, you know, biblical foundation, but, you know, we were, us girls had some taboos, you can't do this, you can't do that, and and uh, I think with the, uh, the movement of the Edmund Hawkins Singers and other groups, too, that changed the face of how gospel music is presented. It can be presented to anyone who's willing to hear the word of God, it, regardless of your affiliation, you know, your country, your native tongue, something about the spirit of the Lord. Uh, if we allow it, it will minister to whomever. And so we began to be a little bit more, uh, quote unquote, worldly with the presentation of it. And it changed everything in the gospel arena. It did because who were some of the contemporaries at that time? I know like Andre and Andre, and yeah. Mm-hmm. James Cleveland, he had been, you know, kind of like doing his thing uh, for years. And Andre, and then um, some of my favorite artists, uh, Billy Preston, a lot, you know, it was a lot of that. And even in the Bay Area, other artists, uh, other uh, singers were, were really, really good. And um, yeah, 
Um, can, can you remember some of those contemporaries in the Bay Area? Um, like, for example, within the choir, there were groups within the Hawkins Singers. For example, uh, Tremaine Hawkins, and there were a few ladies that were not a part of the Edwin Hawkins Singers, but they had been singing for years as young people. They were called the Heavenly Tones. And then there were other groups within the choir who had already established their, you know, singing presence. There were a number of families, the Lions family, for example, that was a big family. And then, as I said, since we all came from various churches, some of the churches had really good um, vocal groups within their local churches that ministered outside of the Edwin Hawkins singers and had been doing it. And then there were others who were friends of some of us. They partnered and they had their, um, they would do their programs. And we, it was just a combination of, it was a choir full of musically inclined folks. You know, that's all, that's the only way I can describe it now, uh, musically, you know, inclined. (laughs) No, no. But I think you had mentioned uh, the ministering of the word Mm -hmm. side of it. Singing for singing's sake was, that wasn't it. It was really to move and to minister. Exactly. That was the focus. And then as we begin, you know, and then years, like I said, once, uh, I guess they start signing on the dotted line, there were more demands and, and more uh, refinement and more things that you could or could not do, you should be doing. And so I guess as the directives came down, you know, the, it, it wasn't a negative thing. The choir got better and better and more polished, traveled farther away from, from the Bay Area and continued on. You know, I personally still had college in view. So after the summer of 69, I was done. <laughs> and I went on to finish uh, school here in the, in the Bay Area and went on with my life. But from about age 16 to 19, that was my tenure. With the so choir. tell me about that. That's, that's really very... What was that decision making? What did you have to take under consideration in order to make that decision? Well, I knew I knew uh, I wanted to finish college. That was a given. So I didn't have, there was no doubt that the choir was fun and I enjoyed it. But I had a, a college in my college career in view. So that was not a hard decision for me to make at all. But there were members of the choir that, were maybe projecting themselves as a, a longer range professional. Probably, yeah, yeah. because uh, you know some it it, it some did. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know all the politics involved, all the business involved, but certainly after that tour, um, some of us went on to uh, college or chose not to continue on. But it was a very it was a it was a divide. Um, I guess we switched from one record label to another, and then the choir was downsized by design. And uh, some of the original members remained. Some new family members of the people that were already there were brought in and the rest is history. I never thought, I never looked back. I never felt any kind of way like, oh my God, I missed out. No, I had already, I enjoyed what I did. I was going to go on to what I wanted to do after that, which was to go ahead and finish school. What did you take away, Arva, from that experience? That glow, whatever that was, what what did you... Oh, wow. How did it shape you? It shaped me a lot because 
every time it came up under whatever, you know, uh, situation or somebody brought it up or we heard they were, the Hawkins singers were here, there, whatever. I, my circle of friends, even at college, we talk about it because my roommates, we were all former Hawkins singers. So <laughs> we, you know, we ended up ultimately forming another group, which I know you're familiar with after the fact, but I feel we applauded those that carried on. I didn't have any ill feeling or any feeling any kind of way because I made my decision. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to go ahead and finish school. And I don't know about how other people were feeling uh, when the majority of us were uh, dismissed for other reasons, you know, the, the business side. And so I, I never got into beyond the summer of 69. I was done. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the one thing you never did give up was the travel bug, though, right? Yeah, never. No, I, I cannot give that up. It started when <laughs> I was 17, and I've been on the go ever since. Oh, my yes, goodness. Yes, yes. It started. Unique. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Pretty unique uh, with your tours that you do to France and mm-hmm. Paris and mm-hmm. and those sort of things. That's, yeah, that's started pretty amazing. As a 17-year-old, my first flight was to Switzerland. At 17, and that was in 1968, and then 69, the East Coast, and then because that's how that got started. But yeah, those <laughs> opportunities. And growing up, again, growing up in Berkeley, it just made you kind of wild, but you, you did use self control. But you, I don't know, I, I, you, you could, I felt like I could take risks, and I did, you know, I hitchhiked and all kind of stuff. I said, oh my God, how, how could you do that? Because I could. <laughs> I'm <laughs> and, from Berkeley. And hitchhiking to where? Doing doing what? I went away to school there to, at the summer in a little small a town in Switzerland, not far from Geneva, called Les Ants. And uh, I always had a little entourage of students with me. I was one of the oldest of the rest of the students. They were eighth graders and ninth graders, and there were three of us that were seniors. My French was very fluent, and so we where we went, they would come with me. So we wanted to go and find out how they actually processed Gruyere cheese. For whatever reason, I found out uh, that there was a farm or these two old men that did that in their home. And I just kept asking, how do we get there? How do we get there? So the people in the village, they would point and all that kind of stuff. And I told the young people, I said, you know what? I'm tired of walking. We're going to hitchhike. You know, we did that in Berkeley. I didn't do it in Berkeley, but that was normal. We, hit, we got on the back of somebody's truck. I don't know who it was. And just like <laughs> the Beverly Hillbillies or something. Here we are. We ride on the back of the, some old people. They took us to their farm. They took us in a room where they had these vats of cheese. They were stirring. It was surreal. Then they took us down to the cellar. They could have kidnapped us, but no, the Lord said no. <laughs> they took us to the cellar and we had slices of 10-year-aged Gruyere cheese. Yes. Oh mm. my God. And then they gave us French bread. And from that point, I was, that was it. So I would do stuff like that. <laughs> yes. That's adventurous. That was great. That's pretty amazing. That really was. Yeah. That, that's, that's, I, I love that. So, so tell me then in relating that experience in 68 and 69, 70 to today, mm-hmm. right? Because some of those things, and you mentioned it ahead of time, which was, there were so many things that were going on in the the, the sixty eight uh, with the, mm-hmm. uh, Martin Luther King's um, you know assassination and and all those upheaval were kind of in the same place yeah right very similar mm-hmm. yeah the dynamics and now as a 
jet setting senior, uh, the lens that I'm looking through, it's, it kind of hurts because there I was six, 17, 18, and I'm singing, but coming out of the backdrop of the Black Panther Party here, all in Berkeley, Oakland, just the unrest, the Vietnam War, and then fast forward 52 years. So when I looked at the dynamics of what was going on historically, as I watched Summer of Soul, it really, it saddened me. It saddened me. I said, wow. Yeah, that was my, I was saddened because so much has changed, but so much has not in 50 some years. The significance of Oh Happy Day is even more significant now than it was then, it seems. Because that message really is the thing that cuts through. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it 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 it's uh, Lord. And I don't recall, I'm not sure uh how much of the footage uh Questlove was able to look at. I I know for sure we probably sang at least three songs. I can't remember if we just did one, but uh, I'm sure we had an opportunity to do I'm sure there's more. I'm sure the, the program was much longer, but looking at it in context for creating another content, you couldn't play all those songs. Yeah, yeah no, there's no way. Yeah. But I remember mm-hmm. as we were walking through Harlem, I remember uh, Adam Clayton Powell. He seemed like he was nine feet tall. He just sauntered through. You know, when you have a person of that statue in your community, was didn't appear to have any guards, you know, security. It, it, you know, now that I'm looking back, I said, wow, he was just walking through there like, you know, it was his backyard or something. So it, um, yeah, the young people then, what they were crying out about, uh, the society issues, uh, the inequities. Right now it is on steroids and um, what we've been experiencing in the last few years recently in 2020. And it, it saddens me. It saddens me. Mm-hmm. But it also lets me know that as long as I'm allowed to be alive, I need to be impactful. I need to help uh, our young people. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get caught up and work through it and evolve from it so you can make a difference for your, our community. So I'm, I guess it's empowering me to be even more an uh, advocate for change. Change is slow. It might be another 50 years before we, and I hate to say it, but, you know, they do patchwork and they Band-Aid stuff. But what's in your heart, heart change, can, legislation cannot change what's in a person's heart. Uh, yes. if, if you are choosing to be what you are, if your heart's not changed, they can write every law in the town. But if there's no heart change, it's not going to be implemented, which is sad. And I know you speak from a, a position of, of knowledge because you're a history teacher. Exactly. And uh, currently, uh, believe it or not, Steve, I, although I did retire full-time, I'm semi-retired. Uh, in two weeks, I'll be going to the classroom. I teach an African-American lit class, and I've already oh. chosen all of our novels. We're going to start with yes. Kwame Alexander's book, uh, Cross Crossover. I, I, I'm, yes. I'm going to try to get some old, some new. Because I need to tap in. Our kids need some healing. They've been in a house. They've been, you know, marginalized. And so my job, even as a uh, a retired teacher, is to make a difference 
as well as best I can with whom I have the 28, 30 kids I'm going to have for one hour a day to give them a sense of hope. So I guess that passion is there. No, that's beautiful. And, you know, it, it makes me think about the task of the choir. Yeah. The one hour they had in the concert. Exactly. the same thing. Yeah. Ray of Hope. Oh, happy day. Everybody was just flipping out at yes. it. <laughs> Oh my God. So yeah, same thing. Well, same is, thing. Yeah. Same thing. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, this has been beautiful. It's been a great uh, opportunity to spend this time with you and talk about this, uh, Arva. Thank you. It's, really, uh, like I said, uh, after seeing the Summer of Soul and, and uh, you know, us dialoguing and, and, and looking at old photos and like, wow. Yes, yes. No one would have known this, but the 50, 60 of us that participated and one of my colleagues, he was in tears. Uh, he said, Arva, I knew about Woodstock, but I didn't know about Woodstock of Harlem. That's what he called it. He mm. said, that saddens me. I said, yeah. So, mm -hmm. And that's why it's important. Our voices, we need to cut through ourselves. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we can tell our own stories. Exactly. Exactly. We can be the so ones. And I'm sure that in your class, the significance of it's going to be those people that wrote those things were telling their story. Mm -hmm. Oh yes. Oh my God. And I probably will, if I'm able to uh, access uh, summer of soul uh, on some level, I guess, yeah, I can show them excerpts. And as we talk about society and what was going on then and have them actually do a writing piece on, you know, ask, ask an essential question and bring it up to 2021. Uh, and, and how do how do we make change wow. as a community? So yeah, it's That's still. Great. I know it's going to be great. I may want to take that class myself. As a matter of fact, I'm getting ready for it. <laughs> All right, yeah. Barbara, thank yeah. you so much for spending the time with us. Okay. My pleasure. Thank you for for asking me. It's, it's brought up a lot a lot of great memories, and I appreciate the opportunity. This episode was produced and edited by Stephen Clara Williams for Kite Flyer Productions. Listen and follow for free wherever you listen to podcasts.